All right, Doxa. Guys, it is good to see you this morning. Go ahead. Find a seat. Guys, uh, we're going we're gonna to jump right in, okay? So I want to invite you to uh, go ahead and grab your Bible, find your way to Daniel chapter 3. All right, if you're, if you're kind of newer to Doxa, we're in uh, week 3 of a 12-week study through the great Old Testament book and story of Daniel. Each week, we're kind of just going through chapter by chapter, coming really just eager and expectant that God is going to show up, that he's going to meet with us, that he's going to speak to us, that he's going to help us, encourage us, challenge us, and push us forward into the men and women he has created us to be through his words to us, which is in fact what the Bible is. And so if you are new, guys, my name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors. I want to welcome you again to Doxa. It's great to have you part of our our church family today. But um, as we're getting into Daniel chapter 3 today, all right, here's what's been going on. All right, Israel has been invaded by the Babylonian Empire. It's the year 605 BC in in chapter 1. And as this happens, the historical king of Babylon, who is Nebuchadnezzar, is just kind of like a megalomaniac. He's kind of crazy, just a terribly wicked historical man. As he invades and conquers Israel, what he does is he takes captive. He makes some of these Israelites slaves, of which there's a couple guys, some teenage kids. One of them's name's Daniel, and there's three of his friends that are made to walk the 700-mile trek into Babylon to live as slaves. And we talked about this week one, but as they're in Babylon, living as slaves, they're, they're given new names, right? They're, they're pressured to worship different gods. They're really indoctrinated in the ways of the culture of Babylon. And on top of this, right, we didn't touch on this week one, but Daniel was made to be a eunuch, which means that he was castrated so they could trust him to be part of the king's harem. And throughout all of this, guys, God gives Daniel favor with Nebuchadnezzar. He has this miraculous thing that happens in chapter 2. We saw he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar kind of sees the glory of God and kind of elevates Daniel and his friends to high positions of leadership alongside of him in Babylon. And as we get into chapter 3, 17 years have passed since turning the page from chapter 2. And we're not given a a date here in chapter 3, but when we look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that Daniel 3 took place in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so at this point, okay, Daniel has been in in Babylon right around 18 years. He's probably at this point in his mid-30s. And as we read this account, all right, I want you to consider this. Guys, this was likely not the vision that Daniel and his friends had for their lives right? It wasn't like Daniel was talking to his mom one day and was like, hey, Danny, what do you want to do when you grow up? He's like, you know what, mom? What I really hope happens, I hope I get to work alongside a tyrannical king. And I hope, if it, this would be amazing, I hope he makes me a eunuch. Guys, right? That's a dream. And you know what's even better is as I live under this, I want to be a slave. Mom, if that could just happen, I, this would be amazing. Right, this was not the vision for their life. And the question is, regardless of how things have played out, how will Daniel and his friends worship and serve God when they don't get the life they want? And this is the same question for you and I. I don't know if you know this, some of you are striving to make this happen, but none of us will ultimately get the exact life that we want. And the question is, How will we respond? 
And as we watch these men, here's what we're gonna see. They remain loyal to the Lord under extreme circumstances, and they live lives of faith. And what we're gonna see throughout this chapter is a vivid picture of what it looks like to live a life of faith, which is what we're created for. And so Christian, if you're here, here's my encouragement to you. As you hear about these three men, I want you to hold up your life to theirs and see what God might say. See how he might challenge you, convict you, change you, even encourage you as you line your life up and match your life up with theirs. And for those of you here, you're not a Christian yet, but you're kind of exploring, I want you to know as we go through this, this is what we're shooting for. And we don't do it well all the time. We all are kind of recovering hypocrites, but this is what we're going for. And I've been praying that as you hear this and you're here and God has brought you here, that your eyes would be opened up, your heart would be softened to come to Jesus because this is what this church is all about and what ultimately all of us need. So Daniel chapter three, verse one. All right, let's see and consider this life of faith. But here's what we got. King Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, hear this, you are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, I want you to circle bagpipe, that's very, very important. It's not important at all, I just think, I, I, I was thinking about music, I love bagpipes, anyway. And every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the, bo- the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, as we consider this, all right, ultimately seeing what a, faith, a life of faith looks like, the first thing that we see is this. If you're a note taker, it's this. True faith leads to obedience. All right, and when I say obedience, okay, there, there's likely people here that you grew up in very religious and legalistic families and churches, and you might push against that. You don't like that word obedience and obey. And some people will even say, you know, no, the Christian life, it's, it's not about rules, it's about relationship. It's not about the letter of the law, it's about the grace of Jesus. And oftentimes when, when people say that thing and they believe that, while there are some truths in there to be sure, it leads to a lot of doing our own thing. We do our own thing because it's about grace, it's not about obedience, it's not about the law, it's about grace, and so we do our own thing and oftentimes we find ourselves doing things that are in contrast and opposition to who God is and what God says. And we just say, well hey, there's, there's grace. And the issue is that the Bible speaks very clearly about truth being, or that uh, the truth of like faith being marked and authenticated by obedience. You know, for instance, Jesus in Matthew 16, 24, he said, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. 
As we hear this, okay, Jesus is saying that if you're truly a Christian, if you're really following him, if your faith is real, then this will be shown by giving up your own way of thinking, your own way of living, your own way about doing about things. This relates back to like Isaiah 55. Like we all have thoughts and ways. God's ways are higher than our ways and greater than our ways. And so following Jesus means that we accept his words, works, and ways, and we model our life in obedience after him. It's obedience to Jesus as God. And we even see this more pointedly as we get into the book of James. If you remember this, as we studied this a couple years ago, we're in chapter 2. James says that faith by itself, if it doesn't accompany itself by works, it's dead. And what James is saying and he's talking about is that lip service versus lifestyle. That many Christians and and people in this room, us in this room, that would call themselves to be Christians know the right things to say, but don't live it out. And James is saying that lip service without lifestyle is nothing. It's not true faith. So again, obedience is authenticated. And obedience authenticates that our faith is actually real. And the truth is, we know this, that through Jesus, there's grace when we fail because we all will. No matter how godly you are, no matter how much you read your Bible, we're all radically affected by sin. But obedience, I want you to hear this, Doxa, is a big deal. It shows that our faith is genuine. And so, Christian, I'll ask you this, and this would be a great thing to talk about in your connection group this week. Where in your life right now are you being disobedient to God? That you're reading the Bible, you're hearing from God, you feel the conviction of the Spirit in your life, and you're just numbing yourself, and you're just ignoring it. Where is that for you? talk about this stuff because obedience really just distances ourselves from God it leads to bondage but obedience leads to life and joy and freedom because it's the life that God has planned for you the full life so talk about this be real be weak share repent and ask for help to live faithfully to God in his word do this this week at your connection group but what we see guys of these three men here is that they had obedience to the first commandment Where God says, if you're familiar with your Bible, back in Exodus chapter 20, that you shall have no other gods before me. And then he goes on a little bit after that that says, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. You should not bow down to them or serve any of these carved images. And here in Daniel 3, this is exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar does. He sets up this massive statue. All right, it's 90 feet tall. It's nine feet wide. So in this time, it would have been just this massive thing. It would have been crazy. And not only was it just big, but he decided that it needed to be made out of gold. And if you were here last week, you you can maybe kind of extrapolate the meaning behind this, right? Because if you remember last week in chapter two with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God gave him a prophetic dream that Daniel interpreted. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there was a dream of this massive statue in which the head was made of gold and it represented Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And then we saw that the chest and the arms were made of silver, representing the Medo-Persian empire that would come after Babylon. And then the belly and the thighs were made of bronze, representing and pointing to the future Greek empire that would be led by Alexander the Great. And then lastly, we get to the legs and the feet, which were made of iron and clay, which was the Roman empire and future kingdoms to come. And through this dream, all right, it was foretelling of the future. And, and we, as we look at secular history, we see that this played out exactly how God said it was, showing that ultimately Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would fall 
and then that there would be a succession of other kingdoms until the Roman Empire came, and then King Jesus would come into history under the rule of the Roman Empire. But then in the midst of this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is astonished by God that he could do this through Daniel. He has a thought. Right here we see it. And Nebuchadnezzar really just thinks, you know what? I don't like that story. I don't like what God says he's going to do. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the position of God and I'm going to rewrite history. And in his pride, he says, I'm going to take that gold head, which is me, and I'm going to make it the entire statue. And as I do this, I'm going to show that my kingdom is supreme. I'm going to show that I am the king above everything and everyone, and I and my kingdom are going to go on forever because I am, in fact, God. And Docs, I don't want you to miss, miss this. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar was elevating himself above God and his will because for him, everything revolved around his desire and his longings. And I want you to know something, okay? We can identify a lot of times, Christians, you know this story, and we say, like, we want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The truth is, a lot of times, we're like Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to know that Nebuchadnezzar's heart is everyone's heart apart from God changing our heart. And this is the spirit of Babylon that we talked about week one. The spirit of Babylon, which is the spiritual reality behind the ancient city of Babylon, which is present today, will always seek to elevate other things above God. So people won't see God, they won't worship God, they won't acknowledge God, and they won't come to know the one true God. So Nebuchadnezzar was just trying to undo history that God revealed, thus making himself to be God. And, and this is what you need to know, okay? Just like God did with Nebuchadnezzar through this dream, he tells him what's going to happen, and no one can change that. All right? God does the same thing with us. He tells us what's going to happen, and no one can change that. And what we see in the Bible is the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back. Again, back to chapter 2, Jesus is the stone that comes and shatters every earthly kingdom. And when we consider Jesus, the first time he came, he came to seek and to serve and to save us through his death and resurrection. And he came saying things like Mark 1.15, his inaugural address, repent. He says, repent of your sin, come to me in faith. I'm going to take your sin, I'm going to give you my righteousness, I'm going to give you eternity in the kingdom of the Father. And this is ultimately, guys, what every single one of us need. Above everything that you think you need right now, all of us need forgiveness of sin. And sin is literally just anything that God is not. It's everything and anything that's in opposition to who God is and what God says. It's doing things that we should not do. It's not doing things that we should do as God has decreed. And we are all sinful by nature and choice. And because we're all sinful, this means that every single one of us, we need a Savior, and this is Jesus. It's Jesus. And so he came the first time to offer eternal life and salvation from sin. But the Bible says that he will, in fact, come again. And we're waiting for this day. But as he comes again, Jesus will come as a king and a judge, and he will set up a kingdom that never ends. And every single one of us, if you don't know this about your life, every single person in this world will stand before the king. They will stand before the judge, and we will either go to heaven or hell. And the destination of our lives is completely dependent on what we have done with our sin. And I know this is a hard thing. If you're newer to Doxa, I, we love you enough to say this. This is like the message of the Bible. 
It's one story about one person, his name is Jesus, that we all need and he loves you. But some people will hear this message about sin and heaven and hell and they'll say, just like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, I don't, I don't like that. I have another way. I'm going to rewrite the story. And some people will say, I'm just going to disregard God. I'm going to write my own story. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to turn to spirituality. I'm going to turn to religion because this sounds easier for me. And it clearly, I, I must be my own God. I mean, this was, the, this was the posture of like the great philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He said as he, in some of his writings, he said, as I consider God or God's, He's like, it kind of terrifies me because that means that I'm not in control. So therefore, there must be no God because I am God. This is the posture of Nebuchadnezzar and this is the posture of so many people today, all of us apart from Jesus. But please hear me on this. You can try and rewrite history. You can try and rewrite your own story. It's not going to turn out well because this is the future that God has set and there's no other way. It's only Jesus Doc said, there is an immovable future that God promises, and the story of Nebuchadnezzar is once God tells you what the future holds, it's absolutely written in stone, and it's irrevocable. And I pray, I pray, I've been praying a lot this week that the people here, that you would not confuse this with seeking after religion or spirituality or morality or philanthropy to try and fix your sin problem. It is only Jesus and I pray that you see him today because he loves you. But as we look at Nebuchadnezzar here, we're seeing a man who wants to be in total control. And he creates this image of gold and commands everyone to worship him. But in the midst of this, there's three men who refuse. Now, why do they refuse? Doxa, it's obedience. It's primarily obedience, that true faith leads to obedience. These men knew God's word. They knew the first commandment to worship no other God besides the one true God, and they stood firm and they refused. And at this point in the story, especially if you grew up in the church, you're very familiar with this, and you're likely thinking, like, yeah, that, that's ridiculous. That, I would never worship another God. But here's what I want you to consider, guys. God's people throughout human history have struggled with this command, and we struggle with it today. Every single one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, and it's called idolatry. And idolatry is a very serious thing. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says the wrath of God is coming on account of idolatry. And when I say idolatry, here's what I mean, okay? An idol is the thing loved or the person loved more than God. It's the thing or the person wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, and enjoyed more than God. Okay, the, Paul, the theologian Paul Tillich, he says it like this. He says, a person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned with, thinks most about, or affects one's life the most. The founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright, he put it like this to kind of dumb it down a little bit, but very practical. He says that idolatry, and he says, Whatever is on the throne of your heart is in fact your God. And here in Daniel 3, this gold image represents just that. It pointed to Nebuchadnezzar who elevated himself before God and above God, and he himself became the most important thing. This is just idolatry, and I'll tell you, guys, we can look at this and this type of thing doesn't tend to happen just like this in our country where we see statues being built and people worshiping them. But I want you to know, if you travel the world, 
This is still happening. You go to places like China or North Korea or Turkmenistan, and you will find statues, giant statues like this one, some made of gold, where leaders and dictators and presidents are represented by these statues, and you will find people worshiping and bowing down or dying. This is still happening. It happens all over the world, and you want to know why? You guys, I, I need you to get this from Daniel. Chapter 1 again. As the same demonic spirits that were at work behind the ancient city of Babylon in influencing Nebuchadnezzar to oppose God are still working today. There's nothing new under the sun. It's still happening. In our country, those spirits may not influence us to bow down to physical statues, but there's a temptation to bow down to other things, allowing idols to slip into our lives that really just kind of kick Jesus off the throne of our heart so that they can rule and they can lead our lives away from God. All right, just consider this, okay? For some of us, I know this. Some of us, we, we get wrapped up in the same things as Babylon. Excess, wealth, power, that's what Babylon was all about. And so for you, maybe it's your job that is the most important thing in your life. You exist to climb the corporate ladder, amassing wealth. That this is what brings you ultimate joy. This is what consumes your life. This is what gives you satisfaction and comfort. Some of us, it's relationships. It's a good thing that becomes a God thing where your entire life revolves around another person, your spouse, your kids, or it's, I don't even have that, but your entire life revolves around the pursuit of another person. Others of you, it's intellectual aptitude where the most important thing in your life is to be the smartest person in the room, to be the most articulate person in the room with the most degrees, the most publications, the most things to say that, so that people can look at you and you can feel good about yourself. Others, it's not so much any of that, but it's your body. Again, a good thing that God gives us to steward and to take care of, but it becomes an ultimate thing that can begins to consume you in the bulk of your time, in the bulk of your energy, in the bulk of your focus, and maybe even the bulk of your money, go to perfecting and, and idealizing a thing that will eventually fade and deteriorate. Guys, the list is, is so long, it's vast. It's, it's idolatry. It's elevating something above God that our lives then revolve around. But here's the point. I want you to know this, guys. Satan will always try to get something on the throne of your heart to push Jesus off. He always will. He wants to tear you away from God. But like these three men, we fight together as the family of God to keep our lives primarily about Jesus because he is God and he is the only one worthy of our complete affection, attention, adoration, and dedication. So let me just ask you this. Is there an idol right now that's seeking to sit on the throne of your life right now, pushing Jesus out? What is it? Throughout our lives, we're all going to have things that are going to tempt us to do this. But again, talk about this in your connection group. Repent of that. Ask for help from those brothers and sisters that are around you to make it all about Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 13. We're going to see that true faith is also marked by courage. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage. Okay, this is par for the course for Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's mad. He's furious because they won't bow down and worship. He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these 
men before the king, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's this prideful stance. Who is that God? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, they don't even acknowledge him as king at this point. They just say, hey, Neb, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. All right, here's what I want you to see. It takes courage not to compromise. Christian, please hear me on that. It takes courage not to compromise. I mean, just consider this scene. All right, there are likely, according to history, maybe upwards of a couple hundred thousand people gathered and bowed down in this moment. But these three guys, they remain standing even when the pressure gets very intense. And all these people, these thousands of people that are gathered and bowing down, some of them were God's people. And this just goes to show that sometimes people who say that their believers will bow down in Babylon once they receive a certain amount of heat and a certain amount of pressure. That some people will compromise their convictions for acceptance and ease and comfort because that is way, way easier. This is not the Christian life. This is not the life of faith. Doxa, you need to know, and college students, I would tell you this, you need to understand this. Sometimes to be godly is to be lonely. To be godly sometimes is to be lonely, that sometimes in order to be faithful to God, you will in fact stand alone while everybody else leaves. And in this moment for these men, there were great pressures to compromise. I wanna show you just a couple first. These men were literally standing before the most prominent and powerful man in the world at this time. And so don't miss the courage to stand up and just say, no, we're not gonna do this. It was crazy. Secondarily, we see that everyone there, and everyone was, everyone was there, and everyone was bowing to Nebuchadnezzar. And as we see this list of people, if you look back to verse two, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and, and so on, this is to show us that this is like a national thing. Everybody is on board. So these men in this moment were just totally countercultural as they stood on their convictions, even though they were the minority all right, people were railing against them. They were viciously attacking them. And Christian, I want you to know that there will be times where to walk faithfully with God, you will need to have this type of courage. That to walk faithfully with God today, as God's word is kind of being disregarded, thrown out, distorted, and being replaced with humanistic and relativistic ideology, where God and marriage and gender and identity and family and purpose and all of that are kind of being redefined and shifted and we're made to like accept and just walk in those truths. It's going to take courage to stand for God's word and God's ways. And we do it humbly. We don't do it aggressively. We do it like these men. Third, as they're being threatened, because they were likely standing in eyeshot of this furnace, this fire. I mean, just consider this. They might have even been able to feel the heat of the furnace as they were making their stand and saying no. And in this moment, 
It would have been so easy for them in the midst of fear to just really just rationalize and convince themselves that it would be all right to bow down just this once, ignoring God's word. And you guys have all felt this, right? You're confronted with something that you're like, I know I shouldn't go this way, I know I shouldn't go this way, and if you act right now of what you know what God is saying, you're probably gonna be good, but you start to be like, I'm gonna step back, I'm gonna think about this, I'm gonna talk to some people. There's always gonna be ways that you can rationalize why this thing is okay. These guys, they could have made a case for situation ethics here, where it would be all right to bow down because they would get killed, and they didn't want to. They could have made a great case in terms of culture, saying, you know what, the Babylonians, they don't really understand the laws and the ways of our God, and we don't want to offend them and ruin our witness, and so we should just bow down now so they'll listen later. They could have said that. They could have made a case for grace, thinking like, man, I know God is patient, he's full of anger, or full of anger, full of love, slow to anger. They could have said, well, you know, we could just probably do this thing right now, and we know we can just go and ask for forgiveness, and, and God will forgive us. They could have even have made a case for making a silent protest. And they, said, they could have said, like, you know, we'll bow down on the outside, but we'll stand on the inside, worshiping God on the inside in our hearts. They could have done any of that. Guys, do you find yourself doing any of that in our world today? As you're confronted with sin and different ideologies and different ways that you can go, are you, do, you, do you rationalize like this? Where are you rationalized going against God because you lack courage? The truth is we're all tempted with this today, and it's compromise. And what I've found in my life, if I can just be real, over the last like, couple years, it's the fear of man over the fear of God. And it leads us to live in ways that are not honoring to God and faithful to God. And then finally, let me just show you this. These men had courage when their leader, Daniel, wasn't there. Have you noticed this? Like, where is Daniel? Right, he's in every other chapter except chapter three. And we have to ask that question, like, where did he go? Like, is this like Daniel knew this was gonna be a bad day and he's like, I'm gonna call in sick, got COVID, and I don't wanna, you know, and it's just, like, where is he at? I mean, the truth is, honestly, we, we don't know, ex- is it too early to make a COVID joke like that? I've never done that, okay, anyway. <laughs> but we don't know exactly where Daniel is at. But it's likely he's off kind of representing the king, doing kingly stuff and representing the kingdom in some other place. But here's the point, guys. These three men are without their leader. And the question is, do these three men completely depend on their leader or do they completely depend on God? Because sometimes when a leader kind of goes off and kind of disappears and they're not around anymore, the followers go crazy and they flounder because they're completely dependent on their leader. And here, these men, I think, like, hear the voice of God and say, Daniel's not here, you're up. And I want you to know that. God is looking at every single one of us and saying, it's time to step up. Depend on me. It's not about another person. It's all about Jesus. And for these men, even though Daniel was gone, they still stayed faithful to God. And I'll tell you this, guys, the strength and faithfulness of your walk with God cannot be fully dependent on anyone or anything else, okay? It can't. We can't afford to make other people the rock that we build our faith on. Because people will fail you. I will fail you. Like everybody will fail you because we're all sinful. We build our rock that is on Jesus. 
because he is the dependable one. He is the immovable one. He is the faithful one. And when we build our life on Jesus and we have community with other people and we need that, we love that, but it's not dependent on that. This is where faithfulness and the ability to step up in courage and to live for God is possible. It's the empowering grace of God through a relationship with Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus needs to be your rock. It's not another person. It's not another thing. Now look at verse 16 again. Nebuchadnezzar, he's just enraged. He's about to throw these three men into the furnace and, he, and says, like, who is this God that can save you? And here's what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, I want you to circle this or underline this in your Bible. Our God whom we serve is able. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, underline this first part. But if not, even if he doesn't, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Because the king's order went, was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Great is our God, amen? This is what God does. Here's what I want you to know. True faith is demonstrated by trust. So here, Nebuchadnezzar, he turns up the heat of this fire. This doesn't make any sense. Right? I mean, it was hot enough, it would have killed them, but he's just furious and crazy, so he just cranks up the heat. He brings out his Babylonian equivalent of like the Navy SEALs, right? So these are special ops guys, they got the neck tattoos, they got a big chew in their mouth, and they're coming to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them in the fire. They tie them up, and they're ready to go. And this fire is likely right near the gold statue from the process of melting the gold to make it. It was likely shaped, if you think like, old school, like leave it to beaver, like milk carton, milk, glass milk jug, kind of like think like a nuclear reactor, right? So it's got a wide opening at the top for heat to escape. It's got an opening at the bottom so that they can shovel in coal to get it to the 2,000 degrees that it takes to melt gold. And that through that opening at the bottom, you could likely see in, but it was likely also sta- uh, stationed next to a hill where you could go up on top of the hill and throw stuff in. And this is probably where they're standing with these three men. And right before these three men are thrown into their death, they say these words in verse 17, look, our God whom we serve is able. Doxa, do you believe this? He is. This is our God, the same God. That's not just a catchy song that we sing, it's a truth that we proclaim. Our God is able 
to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't, be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here's what they're saying. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're still gonna worship him. This is crazy, right? They believe God. They know what he's capable of. They don't know what's gonna happen to him. But Doxa, this is the heart of the believer. It's a supreme trust in the character and the power of our God. These men believed that God was capable of saving them, but they also knew that he is good and faithful and he has a plan. So even if he didn't, they would still worship him because he is a good father and he has the best plans for all of our lives. And I believe this. I hold on to this. I have to cling to this because life will just crush me and it changes and perverts my view of God. But this is who God is. That God can cure your cancer and your sickness. I believe that. And if he doesn't, worship him. I believe that God can heal your marriage and he can do crazy things. And if he doesn't, worship him. I, could, I believe that God can, he can help you with your kids that are running around and crazy and destroying their life. He can bring them back. But even if he doesn't, worship him. I believe that God can deliver you from just the mental health struggles and the sufferings that you're going through, but even if he doesn't, worship him. I believe that God can change your financial situation and help you, but even if he doesn't, worship him. What they're saying is that our God can do anything, but we can't make our God do anything. But everything he does is good for us. Amen? Do you believe this, Doxa? We need to believe this. This is what we see throughout the entire Bible about God our Father. He is sovereign Lord over everything, okay? But Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't care, and he throws them in, but look at this. Instead of burning, they start walking around. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's just shocked, and this causes him to kind of get up off of his throne, and he's kind of like, hey, what's going on, guys? Did we just, I thought three guys, did someone fall out? You know, who's the fourth guy? Doc, so who's the fourth guy? It's the Lord Jesus. It is the Lord Jesus. This is what we call a theophany. This is when God shows up, he's revealed, he's shown. And this happens a number of times in the Bible, with Adam and Eve in the garden, with Abraham in Genesis 18, with Jacob in Genesis 32. Jesus shows up and walks with his people, and this is what Jesus did, and he is our same God, and this is what Jesus does. And I want you to hear this about, about Jesus. When you look at this, guys, before Nebuchadnezzar got off his throne in amazement, Jesus got off his throne in love. Jesus came down and he stands with the people that he loves and whatever they're going through. And this is true of your life today. Christian, you're never alone. Jesus is with you and he loves you and he's helping you and he's walking with you. And in his amazement, Nebuchadnezzar, he calls out to these three guys, right? It's, it's interesting. He sees four. He doesn't want anything to do with the fourth guy. He's like, I don't know. He looks like the son of God type of thing, you know? He's like, you stay there. Three of you, come back out here. But these three men, they come out. Their robes aren't burnt. Their hair isn't singed. They don't even smell like smoke. And the only thing that was burned away, guys, hear this. This is amazing. The only thing that was burned away were the ropes that held them captive, this is what Jesus does. He walks with us, he protects us, and even when we go through the fire, he delivers us from the bondage that holds us, the sin that brings us down. The only thing that was gone from these men was their ropes. 
And this was a miracle of God. And do I believe that miracles still happen today? Yes. Do I see them happen every day? No. This is why they're called miracles and not Mondays, right? But God does show up. He shows up and he does crazy things. He's able. And let me just take this from a historical story and apply it to a present reality. Doxa, we will all go through times like this where it feels like a fire. The Apostle Peter affirms this in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, don't, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that happen to you. We're going to walk through them. And like these three men, true faith will be demonstrated by trust in the midst of whatever we're going through in life. These men trusted that God was faithful and good and able, and they didn't know it was going to come, but they trusted God's character and plan, and we worship the same God. And I need you to hear me on this. Our God, through faith in Jesus, is always with us, and he will always deliver us. He will always deliver you, Doxa. He will either deliver you from or deliver you through. From your fires or through your fires. When he delivers us from our fires, he will literally just take you out of a situation, and you won't even have to experience it. And when this happens, our faith is strengthened. I've seen it happen. I've been in the NICU with some of my best friends a couple years ago, and I've sat there with Lisa, and we heard the doctor say, your two-day-old daughter is not going to make it. She's not going to make it. And she sat there under kind of like one of those incubator things, and we just, he left. We were all crying. We laid hands on this child and said, in the name of Jesus, heal. God, would you do it? Would you do it? And I was there the next day when the doctor walked in and said, I don't know what to tell you. Your daughter's fine and she can go home tomorrow. I don't know what to tell you guys. God doesn't always show up like that, but he does miraculous things and he delivers us from those fires at times because it's his good and perfect will. And that strengthens our faith. I still think about that. But he also can deliver us through our fires. And when he delivers us through the fires and we walk through the fires and those ropes are burned, he does this to refine our faith. And sometimes he will allow you to walk through something to test your faith and to refine it. But he can also deliver us through our fire into his arms, into glory, where our faith is not just strengthened or refined, but it's perfected. And as I look at the Bible, this is what I see kind of as the, the normative thing, is people are going through the fire to be refined. Noah went through the flood. Moses went through the Red Sea. Jesus went through the cross. We've each got our fiery furnace. For some of you, it's financial. Others, it's marital. The list goes on. We've all got a furnace that we're in. You feel it. You recognize it. I want you to know that whatever you furnace you find yourself in, Jesus Christ comes to stand with you. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Even through this fiery furnace, he's with you. Trust God and remember the fourth man. The big idea is this, is Jesus is with you wherever he takes you. Live for him and trust him. I'm out of time. I'll say this. Last thing I want you just to see real quick. True faith surrenders to Jesus. Verses 28 through 30, Nebuchadnezzar, he's just amazed by God. He's amazed by the faith of these men. He promotes them. He makes the decree again in his maniacal pleasure. He's like, hey, 
You have to bow down and worship the statue. God shows up and he's like, oh my gosh, this must be like the son of, the son of God, right? And then he's like, I'll rip you limb from limb if you don't believe in this God, right? He's just crazy. Right observation, wrong application. Nebuchadnezzar needs a new heart. He's seen the glory of God, but he hasn't surrendered his life. Guys, hear this. Nebuchadnezzar, he sees Jesus. He sees his miracles. He sees his love to stand with his people. But he doesn't surrender to him. Some of you have been coming around Doxa for a while. You've been coming around the church. You've been in the Bible. And you've seen Jesus. You've heard his gospel. And you're like Nebuchadnezzar. You see it, but you don't respond to it. And you're in the same place of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not converted. He's not a Christian. He hasn't fixed his sin. He hasn't gotten a new heart because he hasn't come to Jesus. If you're in that place where you're observing Jesus today and you haven't come to him to surrender your life, please, for your sake, for your eternity, come to him. Surrender. Lay down your pride. Lay down your sin and just say, Jesus, here I am. Take my sin. Give me your righteousness and I'll follow you. This is what this church is all about so that you can meet Jesus and we can help other people meet Jesus. Come to Jesus today. So hey, when you walked in, you got a communion cup. I'm going to invite you to stand. Guys, when we, when we take communion, we're remembering the words, the works, and the ways of Jesus. And as we remember Jesus, you need to know that Jesus does something for you that is even greater than what he did for these three men. Do you know that? That what he did for these three men is that he got into it with them. What he does for you is that he went in your place. That these men went into the furnace to endure the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus stood with them. But when Jesus went to the cross to endure the wrath of God, he didn't stand with us, he stood for us. And he endured the full wrath of God for our sin and he dies, he's buried, and then he raises. And just like these men that walked out of the fiery furnace, Jesus walks out of his tomb. And Jesus ascended in glory, and now he's ruling and reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will come again to bring about a kingdom that will never end. And as we take communion, we remember and celebrate this truth. And if you're not a Christian, I would invite you just to observe. This only makes sense for those who have come to Jesus, but if you're in this place where you've come to Jesus today, or you just want to lay down your life and say, Jesus, I love you, take my sin, I'm in then I would love to celebrate with you today and take communion with you. But I'll tell you this, there's a man named Chuck Colson. He once said this about Christianity. He said, Christianity is about proposition, not imposition. Imposition is like convert or die. It's the same thing of Nebuchadnezzar, bow or die. If you don't worship, I'm gonna rip you limb from limb. Jesus is not like that. Nebuchadnezzar and many other world religions today are like that. Jesus, he comes with a proposition. It's like a man coming to the woman he wants to marry, proposing a loving relationship. I want you to know that if you have not come to Jesus today, Jesus today is coming to you, proposing a loving relationship with him. Acknowledge him as God, confess your sin, follow him, and then take communion and celebrate. But Christian, Let's remember the fourth man.
Take this bread. Remind yourself of the broken body of Jesus. That Jesus was broken for you in your place for your sin to bring you home to the Father. The body of Christ broken for you, Doc, so thank you. As you take the juice, this is representing the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. It's Jesus in your place. He took on the full wrath of God and he died for you. And by his blood we are made clean. Through his stripes we are healed. The blood of Christ for you, Doxa. Take it and thank you. Jesus has come for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He is seated in heaven, ruling over us. And one day he will come back for us. Let's remember this as we sing that Jesus is with us even now.